Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Catherine Heyman to Books, Books, Books to talk about her latest book, Fury, a memoir published in May this year by Alan and Unwin in Australia and by Myriad Editions in the United Kingdom. Dr. Catherine Heyman is a novelist, essayist, screenwriter and teacher. She has written six novels. The first was The Breaking, published in 1997. Most recent was Storm and Grace, published in 2017 to critical acclaim. Her work has been nominated for and won literary awards in Australia and internationally. Her essays and travel writing have been published in The Times, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald and Vogue. Catherine has taught writing for many years and in 2012 she founded the Australian Writers Mentoring Program. She is also the Program Director at the Faber Writing Academy at Allen & Unwin. Since 2016, she has been an Honorary Professor of Humanities at the University of Newcastle. She has been receiving extraordinary reviews for Fury, just one of them uh, that I wanted to refer to, The Independent in England, said this. In this book about class and poverty and the tenacity it takes to overcome trauma, the writing is sharp and beautiful, the insights unflinching and brave. Catherine, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you, Nicole. Good to be here. Could you start by telling us what is Fury about? Fury is a memoir of a year in my life after a a traumatic sexual assault trial when I effectively ran away from my life uh, and ended up on a trawler, a fishing trawler, in the middle of the Timor Sea and the Arafura Sea. And that experience saved me. So it's a memoir about wilderness. It's about salvation. It's about what happens after trauma, how you make yourself from really slim resources um, and possibility. But I did realise just really recently, really recently in the last few days, I was reading something about post-traumatic stress disorder and I thought, Oh, (laughs) I'm writing about PTSD. (laughs) Catherine, you've been writing novels since 1997. When did you first decide to write this memoir? How long have you been thinking about doing that? Well, I'd been thinking about The Ocean Thief, the boat that I was on, uh, for a very long time. Probably since I got off it, I'd thought about writing about that time and that world and but I hadn't thought about doing it as a memoir. That wasn't my intention at all. Over many years, I'd told my husband various little stories about the ocean thief and uh, and every now and then he'd say, oh, you really should write that. You really should write about that. And I kept saying, 
Yeah, I know. I really want to. I always thought I would, but I don't know how. I don't know what the centre of the the novel is. I kept thinking it was a novel, you know, and that I had to sort of invent something. I had to make it some other thing. Even I looked last night at some early emails and I saw that I'd emailed a British writer friend, Jill Dawson, in early 2017 Mm. and said, oh, so I'm working on this novel. It's called Girl it's about, it's very, very autobiographical and it's about, all I know really at this point is it's, you know, she's 20-ish, she's on a fishing trawler, she's run away from, from a sexual assault trial, she's frightened and um, my friend emailed back and said, well, surely that sounds like it's a memoir. <laughs> wow. So I, I, it took me a little while. I mean, actually I would say... For the first half of writing Fury, I I was kind of thinking, well, maybe maybe I call it autofiction. I wanted to sort of hedge my bets because I just I think to find the voice, I needed to allow myself the novelist's process to find a writerly voice. And one of the things that people have talked about is the sense that this reads like a novel. Well, the experiences were a bit novelistic, to be honest. They had a kind of on-the-road feel to them, but, of course, I'm applying novelist craft. So, yeah, the moment when I thought, mm, I'm, this is a memoir and I'm, I'm owning it as my actual story was really quite late in the day, probably probably um, late, late 2017. I think by the time I received the Copyright Agency uh, Author Fellowship for fury and at that stage i said it's a it's a memoir catherine the events that you described the rape trial and the time that you spent on board the ocean thief took place over 30 years do you think that you needed that time to put a distance between who you were then and who you are now yeah i do that's right it was it was 30 years ago um and i i think a couple of people have said to me things like was it cathartic writing this this book? And I, my response is always very similar, kind of horrified, absolutely not. And if it was cathartic, then it wouldn't be a good book, I suspect. I think it's important probably especially with this, the subject matter I'm going into, the territory not just in terms of sexual assault but in terms of poverty class, and and the kind of sense of um, you know fury, it's important that that is tempered with time and with craft and um, the kind of maturity that I just even I think ten or fifteen years ago I, I don't think I'd have had the skill or the um, emotional resonance to to bring it all together to have a real sense of what who I was speaking to. Of, of what what I needed it to be, um, yeah, and of it not being cathartic, of it being a, an end result rather than a beginning result. Fury was originally meant to be published a year ago, but COVID intervened and obviously publication was delayed until May of this year. As it's turned out, there couldn't be a more opportune time for a book like this to be published when Australian women generally are seething with rage at the treatment of women, in particular the 
Brittany Higgins, rape allegations, how, how they've been dealt with. Could you ever have predicted uh, that it would be such a timely uh, book? I mean, I, I would, it saddens me that it's a, that it's a timely book in that way. Um, and, and it's kind of ironic. Uh, when, when the book was, when we made the decision to delay the book, um, which was really my decision, actually. We had a meeting and and um, with Alan and Unwin, and uh, and I was sort of panicking a little. Not panicking is maybe too strong a word, but it just seemed this is not going to. I don't know how to publish this book, how to talk about this book, if we're in a period when we we're, we're not talking face-to-face. No festivals, no lunch. No, all the the things that I thought this book in particular really needs. So it was the right decision, but I did feel, um, you know, like, oh, this is the the moment will have passed. And I remember saying to my husband and to my agent, oh, you know, my only, you know, worry is that we're having this conversation now. So that was kind of in early 2020, you know, we've been having the conversation about me too. And you know, this was the moment for this book, really, and I'm not, I don't know, you know, I don't know how it'll go. That was my sort of feeling. And my husband, you know, laughed and said, um, I, I don't think I don't think patriarchy and male violence against women is going to be fixed by this time next year. But, you know, good luck with that because <laughs> if it's fixed by 2021, then, then how your book goes is the least of your worries to be honest so no I couldn't have and it, it it's also been true in the UK the kind of real upswelling of anger and sadness there'd been a recent dreadful incident of a woman being raped and murdered by an off-duty policeman that's right that's right and it's exactly that feeling of we are told to go to the police. We are told to get in taxis we're told to make ourselves safe by making sensible, ladylike decisions. Now, it is shown to us repeatedly that those decisions do not save us. What saves us is men behaving properly and quite simply not raping and not murdering. It's really, it's very simple guideline. And, you know, the bar's not super high there. Catherine, we're not going to talk about the details of your sexual assault because, as you've said many times, this is not a book about sexual assault. But just so that listeners understand, you were raped by a taxi driver, hence the reference. I want to talk now a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in circumstances of poverty and of violence. Could you tell us a little bit about what your life was like as a young person? Um, My father was a policeman. Um, ironically yes um i i think violence amongst police uh officers amongst male police officers is um was and i think still is uh pretty endemic to be honest it um it was certainly then a culture that re- rewarded uh a certain blustering and brash kind of mas- masculinity which my father absolutely embodied so my father was violent. Um, my uh, my my mother was. Um, we had she had five children, and 
my parents divorced when I was uh, six or seven, so I was quite young. Um, and my my mother, so at that time, uh, there were the the Elsie, the the women's shelter was was founded, I think, in nineteen seventy four, um, and my mother divorced my father around that time left left him around that time after 22 years after 22 oh, years absolutely and it was really hard for her to leave it was really difficult she had a lot of opposition including you know priests and um the church and the 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 state you know other police officers um doctors the places that you would think you know maybe maybe they will help me it was in the end, actually, though, it was some kind of radical nuns who who helped her and who also taught her to drive, you know, that kind of symbol of emancipation for, for women of that generation. Yeah, a group of nuns driving a combi um, taught her to drive. So I kind of love that. And, I, you know, it, it wasn't just because a lot of those nuns were very feminist. She got a job that kind of enabled her really to leave, of course, because she she there was no settlement. So, you know, those days where you could um, marry well and divorce well, <laughs> that was not what was playing out or certainly not for a woman of um, my mother's experience. So she left with nothing except the children and it was hard for her to get the children. So she was an enrolled nurse, um, which is, you know, very, very, it's kind of one above a, um, you know, a, a kind of, carer unskilled carer but it's not the same as a registered nurse so it's it's hard work shift work um poor pay and she worked so on one hand it was really tough shift work you know a shout out to anyone who's who's working shift work it's a really tough um way to live it's hard on your body so she was exhausted for a lot of the time but at the same time, working in that hospital was, I observed that being like a light being switched on for my mother. It gave her a community. It gave her purpose. She loved the hospital. She loved that work. She loved being useful. Um, actually, my mother died in that the same hospital that she'd gone to work in and there were... <laughs> Yeah, Terry. There were people who um, were the children who had been delivered. You know, but my mother worked um, in um, obstetrics um, for a long time, and yeah, there were people that were born while she was while she was on. And so, it, you know, it was it it was really powerful to see the way way that work was liberating. And I think actually quite formative for me. I think it, it kind of lodged in me that sense of work is hard and the kind of work that she did was, you know, it's a lot harder than the kind of work that I do. Physical work is hard, but it can also be rewarding. And Catherine, you lived when you were younger in lots of different houses. They were always rented houses. You've said in Fury, the only place I'd ever found home was among books and words and learning. Who introduced you to books? It came about a few ways, really. Um, 
Firstly, play school. When I was very little, you know, in play school they have, they read the story. And I remember seeing, I remember viscerally the feeling of the pages turning and that kind of hunger for this really special time that you get with a book is quite, you know, that sound of the pages turning. I mean, you know, I replicated it with my own kids. You can see that little quiet, desperate absorption, the same little look that they'd get if you were opening a block of chocolate or something, you know, what's going to happen? So clearly that was there. But when I started school, I had a um, a kindergarten teacher who um, saw the hunger that I brought to stories and that I brought to those SRC cards that we used to have, those kind of story cards. I don't know whether you remember them. They were fantastic. They were such great things. Um, a lot of passionate readers I know were were hooked through those cards, including my my husband, who had a very different class background from mine. Um, but thank, thankfully, I would say partly as a result of those cards, that teacher uh, saw my hunger and would send home, you know, little parcels of books. It's unfair to say that you know there there were there would be um, you know I had older sisters; they would also read to me. Um, so it wasn't the complete Matilda. Books were not considered the enemy. It's just that they were not a priority. And you write something lovely about how there was a local St Vincent de Paul and they were selling boxes of books for the price that you'd pay for a bag of lollies and you started buying uh, mm. boxes of those books. And you said in the book, those books saved my life. They became my templates for a better kind of story templates for an escape plan. Could you talk a little bit about what you were reading then and what Mm. books meant to you? Those um, boxes of books were, um, oh, just, again, that mouth-watering thing. Uh, And for years I I would sort of, when I was younger, I'd sort of mention that, you know, when you'd go to the charity shop and you'd buy these books as if this was a a thing that all kind of, you know, eight-year-old kids would do and people would look at me blankly I think I was a slightly odd child perhaps. Um, so I'd buy these, you know, I'd cash in the drink bottles. You could get those little drink bottles, cash them in for five cents. Because my dad was a um, a, a, a policeman, we had the, we kind of lived in what's called the police house. So I started cashing them in when, when I was quite young, getting these coins and taking them to the Bullaroo charity shop and buying these boxes of books. Um, and they would have a lot of those boarding school books, a lot of kind of 1940s English books. There was a lot of English stuff playing because I guess that was they were the books that were being kind of sent off to the charity shops. Um, and then occasionally there'd be something that had found its way in that was completely inappropriate, a kind of Mills and Boone type story. I just read everything. I didn't care, you know, I, I I remember Trinity, I think that's what it called what it's called by Leon Uris was in their big fat book. And I remember kind of, you know, going, oh, okay, well, this looks good and fat. I'll have have a go of that. And, you know, toddling off to school with my big fat Leon Uris and a teacher going, I don't think this is <laughs> let's find something else for you. Catherine, in secondary school, your English teacher, Miss Pitt, introduced you to poetry, to what you call the thrill of the word, and in particular to the idea of reading poetry aloud. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that had on you? 
Yeah. I'm sure I had read poetry before then, but it, I hadn't quite had that sense of um, being, as I say, creaked open by it. And I I remember her introducing um, introducing us to Hopkins first, and I mean that I would defy anyone not to be blown away by even now um, by by Hopkins and and that kind of density of language. I think that experience of of uh, reading and I remember her saying this has to be read out loud the sense that the language itself had uh, a musical power a rhythmic power and a a, a kind of transformative transporting power and then the the next the one that really uh, um, was I think my first experience of being emotionally transported was Kenneth Slessor um, and it was five bells to, you know, without wanting to be too much of a of a teenage cliche. Let's move now to what you describe, I know, in your teaching as the inciting incident, the sexual assault. Before we get to talk about that and the reporting of it, it's impossible not to be really bowled over by the fact that through this book, you recount what seems to be an almost endless litany of sexual assaults that you were exposed to from a very young age, whether it's the man next door, whether it's local schoolboys, whether it's men exposing themselves to you in public. Do you think that you are unusual in that respect or do you think that your experience as a young woman in the 1980s was fairly typical? I think it was fairly typical, to be honest. I'm pulling them together because I have a project, you know, and part of my project is to... Um, make it clear that that although I am writing about something that begins with with a sexual assault that is that crosses a really clear legal line, um, that that there is a spectrum of um, male invasive behaviour that young women uh, effectively grow up with. Catherine, let's just talk a little bit about your own sexual assault. Well, in fact, we're not going to talk about that. What I want to ask you about is what happened when you reported it to the police. Um, I made the decision to to report to report it to go through that process because uh, I I was effectively convinced by I was luck, lucky. <laughs> I was picked up after the assault by another taxi, um, by a, 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 a taxi driver who said, "You know, you you should, you sh- I should take you to the police station." I was saying, "Just take me home. I just want to go home and sort of forget about this." And my life and my story would have been very different if I had done that. I suspect if I had gone home to my, you know, scrappy share house. I would have just gone, I'm just not thinking about it. I'm done. I'm just, it it would not have been, as you said, an inciting incident in the way it turned out to be. So I felt that he was right, that I should report it, that, you know, they should catch him. This should not happen again. 
You were about 19, Catherine, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, um, 20. Um, uh, and I was very drunk. You know, I was a young woman at a party, you know, um, kind of celebrating life. And doing something safe rather than trying to walk home or catch public right. transport, you walked straight out of the party and you flagged a taxi. Right. Um, so I, from the moment I walked into the police station, uh, the, the, the first, when I said I've been raped, the sergeant, and he is so um, vivid to me, he's, ne- you know, like I can still remember kind of every crease of his face, the sound of his voice, and he said, well, I don't know about that, girly, but you've certainly been drinking. And that was like cold water had been thrown on my face. I remember kind of just, okay, this is this is what, this I've, is how this is going to go. I've written that line down. That just summarises his attitude. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, that that is exactly as he said it. Of course, when you're writing a memoir, there are moments that, are, that, that it's a kind of, was that what he said? Was it, you know, and that was, you know, the, the tone, the everything to the word. Um, and that was then how it how it played out mm. for for the most part. There was a great sense of I was a problem in every possible in every possible way. And then it got worse. Then you had the experience of the sexual assault trial, mm. and you write how you felt that, that it was as though you were the one on trial, which tragically is the experience of many women in your position who report rapes. What happened? At the trial, you said, as you described that section in, in the book, that it marked, you said, it marked the end of me, the end of this version of myself. What happened at the trial to you? I think what I'd, I don't know what I expected, but I think what I'd perhaps hoped is that I would have some ally in the courtroom. And I did not. I did not have any ally. And you had no one with you from your family, did you? I had no one with me. But within the system, there was no one there for me, metaphorically, physically. You know, there was just that um, that system, that process was not there to serve me. That was really clear. And, of course, they're not your proceedings as um, prosecutorial proceedings. You are there as a witness for the prosecution. You're not a party. Exactly. So that, I mean, everything in that um, process means that you're, you're, a, you're there to serve someone else effectively. Um, I'm not suggesting that that, 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 you know, that the whole process of, of how that happens should be overhauled, but it certainly my experience was... Um, this is brutalising. Uh, all the usual cliches, and they are cliches, but they're cliches for a reason, of um, being attacked, being absolutely decimated in every possible way, everything that could be held up to, to say that I was, um, that I was, you know, an untruthful person, that I was a deceptive person, that I was um, a person who, who was inviting uh, sexual assault that you know it was it was just um a, a really horrific experience actually 
you know, there were times that I had have said it was more brutalizing than the than the assault itself. I mean, I think exactly. giving quantities or you know marks out of ten to to trauma is is tricky. So I have stopped saying that because I just think I don't know that I can that I can apportion it in that way. But certainly, it was um, what I think part of it was that in that courtroom, it became really clear to me that it wasn't just a gender war, it was a class war. Mm. Why do you say that? It was, ev- again, everything in that process, everything in that system was really clear to me, you are not the power here mm. and and this is not for you. You are other in this environment. And that, of course, made me think the world is not for me. You know, I don't mean in a, in a depressive sense. I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't remotely suicidal. I was angry. Mm. It was the beginnings of being angry, the beginnings of um, almost not quite angry enough to be able to name it yet, but a sense of an un, unnamed, I, didn't, I don't think I articulated it to myself, but a feeling of that, that kind of fury that you get in the face of injustice. Mm. And we do see that. I mean, to your enormous credit, given what you'd experienced and how young you were, we do see flashes of anger. We see it in your uh, interview with the policeman who behaved so appalling, and we see it in the response to your response to some of the questions that the uh, defence barrister is asking you. After the trial where you were the witness for the prosecution, the taxi driver is acquitted and you feel enormous shame about that. And you write at various other points of the book, at various other sexual assaults at different levels of severity that you experienced. Each time you write about those, you write about the shame that you felt. And you talk about one time, uh, at one point you talk about shame as your constant companion, your underwear and your overcoat. Why do you think it is that it is the female victims who feel the shame for the male perpetrator's wrongdoing, criminal activity. I think there's also something very particular about um, sexual assault or indeed sexual abuse that that somehow invites the victim to take that shame into themselves because it is a boundary-crossing, deeply intimate um, invasion so, so a, a threshold is crossed that I think um, kind of punctures something, to be honest. I think also, and this is where I do celebrate some of the shifts that we are in now, shame is like a mould that really grows in silence. And in the dark. Mm-hmm. And when we have that sort of, oh, we must not speak of it, of course, what that is saying is there is something wrong with you. This is your shame. This is your, you must be silent. That the message underneath that is you should be ashamed. It's your job to keep it quiet. So I think that's the really big shift that we now have, that young women, um, you know, like Grace Tame, are saying, actually, this is not my shame. So I'm, I'll stand up and I will shout it because it belongs 
I mean, that that thing of, you know, women who would be sitting on airplanes or buses and look over and there's a man, it still happens, you know, masturbating. Now, I haven't personally experienced that one, but I know women who have. I know more than one woman who has had that kind of experience. Now, I like to think, and I do think that now, most young women would call it out. Call out. Stop that, that, doing that, you disgusting perv. <laughs> that seems to be the best answer, doesn't it? By women sharing their stories and refusing to just stay silent and to internalise the trauma, to call it out, like, as you say, Grace Tame has, like Brittany Higgins has. The other answer, it seemed to me, is uh, what we were talking about before, which is female anger. Your, your book is really a muted howl of fury and I think that's what so many women are experiencing. It seems to me that's another way of flushing out that shame. Don't be ashamed, be angry. Well, I remember years ago a, um, a therapist friend saying that uh, she felt that depression in, in some cases was rage that had not been expressed. It takes a heck of a lot of energy to hold anger down. And if you're spending all the energy holding that down, then that's energy that isn't going somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm really clear that that what I'm writing about is the, in terms of anger, isn't rage, that it's a, a kind of a, about the mobilising power of fury, which I think is a much colder, sharper, precise. I, I, I can I sort of have a sense of it visually, like a sword. It's sharp, and you need it. You need a bit of that. I th I think for me anyway, rage is way less useful. Mm. Uh, it's not that it that you can help rage, mm. but rage in the way I feel it or, or understand it, is a sort of scattered, that's more the how. So it's really useful and I think you kind of need that to be able to take action, to be able to, to do a bit of chopping off of legs. Catherine, let's move now to talk about your time on The Ocean Thief. So after the trauma of the rape and then the, the rape trial, you literally ran away to sea. At the age of 20, you went to work for a season on a fishing trawler with four men, Carl, Mick, Frenchie and Dave. What was your time like on The Ocean Thief? Tell us a little bit about the day-to-day -day experiences. Working on a fishing trawler is incredibly hard work physically. So that was the first thing, that the sheer physical work, um, muscular work, um, at work that that led to the kind of exhaustion I have never experienced before, nor since, including with young babies. Um, so that, so what that means is, so when you're trawling, you tend to um, uh, haul up. You, you the, a fishing trawler has a big high uh, sort of metal bar. We call it an A frame, like a if you imagine it like a big high A. And then on either side of this A frame, you have these wide um, outrigger booms. And from those booms, you you drag two nets on the sort of trawler that I was on. That, that's not the case for all trawlers, but for big trawlers that go out for whole seasons, that's how they tend to work. 
So so what that means is, you know, you, we, we're trawling the nets and then we bring them in every few hours. So you're physically, I mean, now there are um, electronic winches. There was a lot of just physically pulling things up, winching physically, you know, manually. Um, and then you're sorting through the catch for what you're looking for, which in our case was prawns. And so that's really fast. Um, and then the waste is dumped back into the sea. It's, again, there have been some changes, but maybe not enough. Um, and then the whole process starts again. So that's a kind of constant cycle. So you're often sleeping for just a couple of hours. At night you sleep for a couple of hours and you get back up and go through the process again. Then you have this, and it's noisy. You know, while, while all of that's going on, it's noisy um industrial noise but then in the daytime you know there's a period when you anchor and you're it's completely quiet it's quiet unlike anything else because there's no there's no street noise there's no horizon there's no people so th- this sort of contrast between um chaos, noise, incredible busyness and deep, deep quiet and a contrast between kind of industrial, what I think of as industrial ugliness um, without wanting to sound too sort of 19th century aspirational that, you know, but that's what I, metal trays and the kind of particular um, visual and oral quality of industry contrasted with Absolute wilderness, extraordinary beauty, um, wild sunsets, and the sense that there's no one else here, but it provided that sense of real escape. I want to ask you about this because you use you talk a few times when you're describing this experience on the ocean thief. You use the word freedom, and I know that you've been asked, and, and it's an obvious question, given what you'd experienced, you'd been you'd been raped, you just had this horrific experience. Did you feel afraid to step on a boat with four men you didn't know and set out to sea? I wasn't frightened. I don't think I was. I mean, I was, well, on the Ocean Thief, as I have said, I was frequently frightened and I was frequently, I I think I was frequently in physical danger. You know, there were disastrous storms. There were There were at least two occasions when I did not, know if I would survive. Mm. It was very frightening. But that was a fear actually that I could manage. And I have learned, I learned then and I and it has it has been a kind of baseline of my life since then that I can rely on my own body. Mm. I I know my own strength. And that is really a hundred percent a gift of that boat and that well, time. You've done a lot of um I shouldn't call them extreme, but activities since. You've done scuba diving, you've done free diving that to me seem enormously physically brave. Yeah, I think what I came to know then is that I physically, I trust my own body. I will always choose a kayak rather than a motorboat. You know, I, I kind of don't necessarily trust machinery, but I I, I much feel much more safe if I'm in charge of what's happening for me physically. So, all of that was dangerous. All of that was um, frightening. But the men were not frightening. And, and Why not? Well, as I have said before, 
they were, it's really, really very simple, they were not rapists. Mm. That was not their intention. You know, it's they were there to do a job. Their aim, their goal um, was to, to get a good catch and make some good money. And sexually assaulting a woman on the boat was not on their agenda. You I didn't once, know that when you got on the boat. I did not know that. And it, and I will not say that that doesn't happen and didn't happen on those boats. Um, but I don't think it happens as much as you might expect given the circumstances. It seemed to me that given what you'd been through, there was almost a sort of fearlessness or recklessness in you. Like what had happened to you was really the worst thing that you could imagine happening. And after that, you you were in a in a sense fearless, I guess. Look, I think I think there's a few readings of it to be honest. Um I think, as I said uh, at, at, at the start of our talk, I realised recently that I was also writing about PTSD. You know, I think I was in a kind of PTSD, which is one of the reasons that when I was on the boat, I was getting sort of bombarded by a series of memories that were sort of swimming up all over the place. I think that's kind of PTSD. I'd removed myself from trauma. I'd removed myself from the things that were um meaning that I was sort of replicating uh, trauma and and I was having a series of aftershocks mm. effectively. So I think people in people who are traumatised don't necessarily make the best decisions, arguably. Mm. On the other hand, I think perhaps, A, my instinct was actually highly attuned. By that stage, you know, I'd hitchhiked to the end of the country and I had, I had um, you know, had a sort of instinct around people. We haven't talked about that, but you'd basically made your way from New South Wales to the Northern Territory. By hitchhiking, yes, Um, which, again, you know, absolutely, there is a reading that is you were really running at danger. You were really testing out, and I, I, I think that was part of it too, testing out, okay, I haven't been safe where I should be safe. In the streets of my hometown flagging a taxi to get home after a party. So, so then what, 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 where will I be safe? But the other thing I think is that I had been unsafe because I was female. I had been, you know, guilty of being female. That was how it felt. So stepping onto that boat and particularly um, shaking off the role of of what was the female role of being the cook and choosing by incompetence not to uh, be in that role, I was really saying kind of to myself and and to the world, I guess, okay, so I'll be I'll be in the male world. I'll 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 that's that will make me safe because I'll be one of them. I'm not trying to be female now. So, so that I think was part of what was playing out as well. But you know, as I've said, the crucial, crucial thing is what the men chose to do. Catherine, I want to ask you just uh, as we close about the idea of transformation and remaking yourself. You refer at one point to the poetry of Larkin, and you you talk about his explanation that when removed from the familiar, you are perceived differently. 
and so you perceive yourself differently. Is that why you needed to run away so that you could reinvent yourself? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. That's from a poem called, the line isn't, but but Philip Larkin wrote a poem called The Importance of Elsewhere, um, which is a sort of praise song to his experience of being in Ireland and and, uh, finding new things about himself. I think that, I do think my life would have played out very differently if I had not made that decision to stick my finger out and step onto that highway. Um, I can't know what it might have looked like, but I do know that that became uh, a circuit breaker, a lifeline, a threshold that I was able to cross over into a new story that in order to to make something new, you know, it's like in order to decorate, you've got to clear the surfaces. You've got to, I think I still do that in, in, in my life as a sort of, okay, we need to kind of clear everything. What have we got? So I had to do that. I had to throw everything out and go, okay, when I'm left now just with me, it's a clean slate. I could do anything. I could be anything. Knowing what you know now, Catherine, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self, to that girl who had been through that horrific experience, who was embarking on this, what turned out to be a transformative experience um, on the ocean thief? Well, you know, I was thinking recently about, about two things in relation to that young woman. I was looking, actually, there was um, Murray Claire had an, an excerpt and they used a photo of me or two photos of me when I was young. And one of them in particular, you know, I was looking, I'm, I have no makeup on. And I wore a lot of makeup at that time and it's one where I'm, I have no makeup on. And, and I was looking and thinking, oh, you look so young, unsurprisingly. But also this really deep sense of a, a kind of circle of looking at her and thinking, you saved me, kid. You know, you you made me and they're kind of back at you as sort of I am going to save you Mm. so my message to that young self is this one there's a there's a poem and I cannot remember the the writer to my um mortification but the poem is called to the woman crying uncontrollably in the bathroom stall next door um, and the final, and it, it, it's a woman speaking to this woman who she can just hear weeping and she's saying things like, if you've ever um, opened yourself to someone you did not want to open to, and she goes through this sort of list, a litany. And the final line is the line that I would say to that younger self, which is, hold on, joy is coming. That's a wonderful note to end on, Catherine. Thank you so much for speaking to me today on Books, Books, Books. Uh, it is the most extraordinary book, uh, talk about a book whose time has come. And I heard Jennifer Byrne interview you recently and she said something very powerful, it seemed to me very apt, that she had this feeling that in the same way that Julia Baird's book Phosphorescence was really the book for 2020, that your book Fury really is the book for 2021 and, and what women in particular are experiencing now. Congratulations and good luck with it. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. 
You can also find me, Nicole Abadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.